We continue this morning in our series from Paul's letter to the Romans. Uh, We're calling Glory in the Gospel. And today we're looking at the first part of chapter 2. So I hope you'll open your Bibles and turn there with me, Romans chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew rack. If you don't know where to turn, the page number is in the order of service in the worship folder and an outline on the back. Uh, Back at Christmas, my dad, who served as a Baptist pastor for about 45 years before retiring, gave me a, a booklet of quotations that he had collected over the years. And uh, it's not the kind of thing you just sit down and read a book of quotations all at once. And so I've been kind of dipping in here and there. And uh, just a few days ago, I was looking at a couple of them, and I ran across this one. It's going to be up on the screen. The trouble with most Christians is that they would rather be on the judgment seat than on the witness stand. Hmm. It's kind of fitting with last week uh, with uh, Chris and talking about uh, not being ashamed of the gospel. We're supposed to be a, a witness. Instead of being a witness for Christ, telling others about the mercy and grace of God that we have personally experienced, we'd rather, so often, we'd rather be the judge, telling others how they are guilty, condemning them for their sin. But if you've been with us as we've gone through Romans 1, maybe you think, well, isn't that where Paul's leading us? From the witness stand to the judgment seat? I mean, he started talking about his commitment as a witness for Christ. He says he's eager to preach the good news. He's not ashamed of the gospel. But then he ends up, chapter 1, talking about God's wrath toward sin. So is Paul leading us from the witness stand to the judgment seat? As chapter 2 begins, he's going to be very clear with us. We are fooling ourselves if we play the judge. That's God's job. Our passage is uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, but I'll back up one paragraph so we get the flow. So uh, back up to chapter 1, verse 28, and then on through chapter 2, verse 11. And since they, which if you remember, that's the sinful humankind, uh, willfully ignorant of God, given over to foolish idolatry and uh, utter immorality, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, You who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed." 
He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, for the Jew first and also to the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also to the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Now, if you've been paying attention all through this service, you're thinking, like, wait, what? I thought I was, but then he said, like, this passage raises a lot of questions for us, uh, and we'll try to answer many of those. Uh, But this is the most important, because what he is trying to do is, well, here's here's the question. Here's the theme statement for today. If God's judgment is based on our behavior, what hope do we have? If God's judgment is based on our behavior, what hope do we have? What hope do you have? We're going to break this down into three parts. So here's part one. No excuse, no escape. Your judgment of others only serves to condemn you for your sins. Now, the first word of of chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 1, is therefore, and tried to help you, help us follow the connection by reading that paragraph before. You just can't start with a therefore. Um, And again, the chapters, headings, uh, Paul did not write his letter with chapters and verse numbers. So this is is all one flow. There's a shift, yes, why we have chapter 2 here in our Bibles, so we can find it. We can turn there together. But there's a shift, but it's part of something, a bigger movement. So what's the connection. Uh, commentaries will say, like, you, you read them, and it's like, oh, it's really hard to follow Paul's logic. And I think that's true, partly because the conclusion he draws uh, is surprising. If I could paraphrase the, the last verse of chapter 1, those who ignore God know that their sin deserves death, but they do their evil deeds anyway and applaud others to do the same. And so next, we might well expect Paul to say something like, so if they do those evil things and approve others who do them, your job is to condemn those things and those who do them. You see how you could have gone there? And many people do. But that's not what he says. Therefore, you have have no excuse. Like, whoa, wait, wait, what? I thought we were talking about those people. Yeah, but, but you have no excuse, oh man, every one of you who judges. And now, it's, it's way too easy just to kind of turn off at this point, uh, to kind of tune out, because we hear judging, and we, we think we know what he's talking about. Oh, judging, yeah, that's bad, right? Uh, for many people, this is so ingrained into our culture that, that the truth is somehow beyond question. Judging is bad, judging is wrong. But, but then along comes the the, the, the great paradox of social media, and I, I don't mean to use social media as a whipping boy here, but, but, but listen, listen, think about this. Uh, we've created a whole digital ecosystem for putting yourself out there, right? And, and especially with younger kids who are still forming their own sense of self and identity and who they are, and like, okay, I got to put myself out there in a way um, that every, people will like and approve. And, and that's, that's what it is, right? We, we put ourselves out there, and we've got all these ways to do that uh, for other people's attention and evaluation. 
Thumbs up, thumbs down. And while some people, of course, are saying, well, okay, when we do that, we should, we should always affirm, only affirm, uh, you know, don't, don't criticize or else you're shaming at the very same time. This is the paradox of social media. The very same time we have cancel culture, right? People saying, not only do we think you're wrong, we will punish you, we will banish you. Do, do you want to know why the world is so confused and conflicted about judging It's because we resist any kind of moral authority, but we can't escape the fact that we live in a moral universe. Do you know what I mean by that? We live in a moral universe. There are such such things as good and bad, right and wrong, justice and injustice. And, And Christians believe this is actually a strong argument for the existence of God. If there is right and wrong that that go beyond my opinion and your perspective, there must be an original architect of this moral order. And the one and only author of creation is its ultimate authority. He is the ultimate lawgiver and the final judge. That's what the Bible teaches. All that to say, judging in itself is not wrong. Contrary to popular opinion, judging just judging period, judging in itself is not wrong. It's part of living in a moral universe under moral authority. That's why we can't quite escape judging altogether, even though we resist the idea of a moral authority. The problem here that Paul's talking about is that some people try to make themselves the moral authority. Well, we have to say this. Sometimes you want, you, you and I, I want to make myself the moral authority. When, and here's the problem, when A, I'm not God, and B, I'm a sinner too. That's exactly what's going on here. So do, do, do you follow? It's not just, oh, judging is bad, judging is wrong. That's why I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm going to say don't do that. The problem is becoming, be, acting like the judge when you are not God and you are a sinner too. You are not God. You are not the judge. I think that's what Paul is not so subtly pointing out when he says in both, both verses 1 and verse 3, when he, when he calls this person he's, uh, that, that he is uh, pointing out, he says, he calls that person, O oh man, who are you, O oh man? You, you have no excuse, O oh man. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge others? He, you're only human. You're not God. We will, we will be judged Sin will face judgment, but that's not your job. And even worse is when you judge others as a sinner, when you do that, he says, you condemn yourself. You'll be in bigger trouble when you stand before God. You thought you were the judge. Uh, Guess what? You're going to stand before the judge. Now, did you notice that... um, as that this link that goes back, another one, that goes back to chapter 1 in that word excuse. We saw that back in uh, verses 19 and 20. The, the, to paraphrase that, the, the truth of God, uh, His power and authority is clearly seen in creation by all people, so they are without excuse, He said. That is, at the final judgment, no one can stand before God as judge and say, oh, God, you can't condemn me. I'm innocent. I didn't know you were out there. I said, no. You, you saw the evidence in creation. You, you can't say you didn't know. You can't say that you are without excuse. But then, take, how much more then 
How much more than those who believe in God, those who acknowledge his authority, those who know his commands, those who recognize the necessity of obedience, who are able, able to correctly point out the sins of the world when we stand before God? What's our excuse? We have no excuse. I mean, we're, we're in deeper. We're in bigger trouble. We look at the world and are tempted. Do you, do you find yourself like this? You look, you look at the, the craziness, the wickedness in the world around you, and it's just, oh, so tempting to think, well, we know better. Oh, man. We know better, and yet we do the same things. That's why the condemnation is worse. We can, we're condemning ourselves. In terms of that last paragraph in chapter 1, think, think, we, we do the same things. Envy, covetousness, some of those things, that, that, that litany of, of bad stuff. Envy, covetousness. Well, you know, we sit here and say, well, I'm not as bad as other people. I'm not, I'm not like those greedy billionaires, uh, you know. Yeah, well... But if I'm honest, I do look at my friends and maybe I wish I had his job or her house or their income. Gossip, slander. Huh? I mean, I know the tabloids are, are trashy, but it feels so good to spread rumors about my coworkers. It's, it's so easy to criticize my boss behind his back, to, to assume the worst of motives of our governing officials. Ah, maliciousness. Strife. Hey, I'm not sending troops to the Ukrainian border. It's not my, you know, I'm, I'm not starting a war. Uh, but I'm more at fault than I'd like to admit in the, the conflict, the tensions that exist in my marriage, in my family, in my workplace. It's so easy to see the sins of others. I'm, I'm quick to point it out. It, you're guilty. And Paul says, hey, look, you've got three fingers and a thumb pointing back at you. You're guilty. Your judgment of others only serves to condemn you for your sins. Verse 3, uh, again. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? I mean, this is a rhetorical question, but what's the expected answer? If you think you can go on sinning and expect to just skate past the judgment, you are kidding yourself. You are deluded. That's the, that's the delusion. Here's the reality in verse 5. But because of your hardened and penitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. If you refuse to repent, to turn from your sin, but keep on sinning, you are only storing up wrath from God for yourself on the day of wrath, the judgment day. Our son Jack is in his final semester of high school, senior year of high school, and while college isn't for everyone, we're, we're trying to plan for that. It, it, you know this. This is, this is like climbing a financial Mount Everest, and so, you know, you, you save what you can. Uh, we're working and saving. He's working and saving, uh, trying to store up the funds for the day when the big bill comes due. But what if you said, you know... I think I want to go to college. And then he spends all his money on, I'm all, I, need a, I need a whole new wardrobe. Uh, I, need a, I need a brand new best computer. Um, new car would be nice to get there. 
you know, and boom, all his savings gone, and mom and dad max out credit cards before the very first day of class. And instead of storing up savings, we're piling up debts. Unless somebody else is covering that bill, we're in big trouble. I hope you hear just a little hint of the gospel there. Unless somebody else is paying the bill, we're in big trouble. How much more foolish is it, though, to know that judgment day is coming when we will not be the judge? We will not be judge, jury, and executioner. We must stand before the judgment seat of God. How foolish to focus on the sins of others while ignoring your own. How foolish to pile up debts for the day of reckoning. You're storing up wrath. No excuse. No escape. We're not, we're not uh, ignoring or minimizing or, or uh, soft-pedaling the sins of the world. We've just got to be honest with ourselves. Let's move on to part two of the sermon. This is, and I'm going to read again uh, verses 6 through 11. Just so that we have these in our ears again. He, God, will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first, excuse me, and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. Why? Because God shows no partiality. So I'm taking the heading from this, uh, from the sentences that bookend this paragraph. Two descriptions of God's judgment. This is part two. According to works, no partiality. God's judgment gives each person their due for what they have done. Now, before we get into it, into the, the complexity here, I hope you noticed the, the theme word glory here. We were talking about the glory in the gospel. Glory go, factors into um, the, the wonder of what God does for us in the gospel. But it also factors into the problem, the sin. We've exchanged the glory of God for idols. And here's glory again. By, if by doing, uh, verse 7, if by doing good you seek glory, you get eternal life. Verse 10, there is glory and honor and peace for those who do good. That's glory as your goal, glory as your reward. Uh, think in terms of the Olympics that maybe you're watching uh, these days. Don't we see this basic principle at play? If you work hard to pursue excellence, to pursue victory, to pursue honor, you'll get it. That, that's how you do it. You, you got to pursue it. And if you do well enough, you'll get the glory. And, and at one level, it's, this passage is just that simple and straightforward. And yet, I, I'm sure you're out there like, but, uh, but, but, but it doesn't, it's not like that, is it? Uh, hopefully that's because you have got good gospel instincts. But we do need to understand this passage on its terms because this has something to teach us. We're sitting there thinking, like, I I know the Bible teaches salvation by grace through faith, but this sure sounds like he's saying good works will get you eternal life. Most scholars understand Paul to be speaking at this point, to be speaking hypothetically, as if to say, well, in theory, if you could do everything right, God would reward you with eternal life. But in practice, that's impossible. Though he doesn't say that. He He doesn't leave it there. He doesn't give us that out. I've heard others say something like, well, yeah, 
if you want to talk hypothetically, theoretically, you can, you can get to the United States, from the United States to England. Now, think before air travel. You can get from the United States to England by boat, or you can swim. Right? I mean, theoretically. Theoretically, one could swim from New York to London or whatever the western Portsmouth or Plymouth or whatever. You could, you could, you could swim to England, theoretically. Realistically, no one can swim to England, right? Now, you, you follow what's going on here? So this is, this is what Paul is, is, seems to be doing. But you're reading this like, well, yeah, at one level, it's so simple. Get, do wrong, get wrath. Do right, get eternal life. But here's how you, and, and maybe you even want to push back. Like, okay, if I read these words, literally, that's not what, they're not talking hypothetically. How do you get that? How do you assume that he is speaking hypothetically? Well, you've got to follow the larger sweep of what he is, what he's laying out and what he's arguing for. Um, why do we need the gospel? He, he's, he's, he opened the letter. I'm, I'm all about the gospel. I'm all about letting people know the good news about Jesus Christ. Why do we need the gospel? Well, chapter 1 ends, humankind is under the, God's, the wrath of God for their sin. They're completely given over to idolatry and immorality. And chapter 2 says, hey, hey, don't think that if you are, don't think you're an exception just because maybe you are a little more moral, a little more religious than others. Don't think that you're going to escape the judgment. You do the same kinds of sin. It's a matter of degree, uh, not uh, you're not in, a, in some special category. All this leading to the conclusion at the beginning of chapter 3, some of you know this, right? There is none righteous, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all fall short of the glory. It's only toward the end of chapter 3 that we really get to the good news of Christ, what he's done for us so that sinners like you and me could stand at the judgment and be counted righteous in Christ. So, if you think, if you, if you think that you read in this paragraph, chapter 2, verses 6 to 11, what I just read a moment ago, if you think you hear in this paragraph a way of salvation, a way to eternal life, but there's no Jesus. He doesn't use the word gospel to talk about this. Paul, Paul doesn't mean for us to understand this as a way of salvation. Is it good news if I say to you, hey, just, uh, you know, God, God's going to judge us by our works, and, um, you know, if you did, if you've done all the right things, you'll be fine. If you've done all the right things at the right time, in the right way, with the right attitude, you'll be fine. Or, uh, you know, just, uh, do you think, if you, could you... Um, if you've ever been, if you've never been, uh, to use some of the words of this paragraph, if, if, you, if you've never been self-seeking or disobedient to the truth, uh, relax. Judgment will be no problem. No sweat. If you've, if you've never obeyed unrighteousness, oh, you'll, you'll pass with flying colors. Is that, what you, want to, is that what, you want, what you want to go with here? I know it's very tempting for people who, who like to think of themselves as, as decent people, um, folks with traditional values. Like, we're nice. We're nice people. To think like, well, I'm, surely I'm okay. But this is meant to sober you, if not terrify you. Oh, oh he'll, he's just going to judge you according to your works. And he's, and he's not, 
uh, impartial, or I mean, excuse me, he's not partial. He, he's, he's completely neutral. It's just going to be based on your record. You might not be the uh, younger brother in the prodigal story, the, pro- the story of the prodigal son, the, the younger one, the immoral son, the one who wasted all of the, the inheritance and in reckless living. You might not be that guy. You might be, though, the older brother in the story of the prodigal son who did everything he was supposed to do but was also alienated from his father. But in the end, God is going to judge you and me and everyone, not by what we profess to believe, not by the precision of your doctrinal statement, not by the moral standards that you hold to or the values that you vote for. God will judge you by what you have done. Are you ready to stand on your record? Do you want to go with that? His judgment is impartial. That's the back end of this paragraph. This is about every human, doesn't matter if you're Jew or Greek, in Paul's day that would have been the sharpest distinction that he could possibly make. Not primarily, it does have to do with ethnicity and race, but it's not primarily about ethnic difference, but difference in terms of a privileged position with God. The Jews had a history, had a heritage of covenant relationship with God. They had the the Ten Commandments, they had the temple, they had the priesthood, and it would be easy for a Jew to think, hey, I've got that heritage, I've got that identity, I've got, you know, I've got a special pass here. Um, that, that, that seals the deal for me. I don't have to worry about the judgment. Now, the, the rest of chapter 2, and next week, and into chapter 3, we'll look at this in more detail, so I won't go too much deeper. But think about this for the moment. Impartiality is what you want in a judge for true justice, right? Someone who doesn't look at, if you got into a, a, an accident, a fender bender, or not, nothing fatal, but, but there was some you know, question about who was at fault and you had to go to court. Uh, do you want a judge who's going to look at the two of you and decide based on, hmm, one guy's black, one guy's white. One woman's rich, one woman's poor. Uh, one, uh, one person is related to the uh, mayor and the other person is on welfare. Is that how you want the judge to operate? No, no, absolutely not. We, we want justice. We want impartiality in the justice. We want the, the figure of justice to be blindfolded, right? The scales, balanced, true balance, true justice, blindfolded, blind justice, not impartial. That's what we want. When it comes to the final judgment, your status, in this case as a Jew or an upstanding middle-class American, does not pay for your sins. God looks at what you have done. Now, to get, we, we, we want to get ahead to the gospel because we don't want to stay here, right? We, we don't want to stay in this situation where, like, well, feels a little bit like a at best, well, I'm gonna, and that we could just kind of hope, hope for the best at the judgment. And, and folks, I hear people say that sometimes. I know that's how some people think. Well, I really don't know how it's going to be at the end, but I'm hoping for the best. I hope I did enough. I hope that he's, hope he grades on the curve. That's what a lot of people are hoping for. How, how will we get in if we, if we don't have a, some kind of pass or some kind of access 
A few, a few years ago, I attended a, a, a very large ministry conference. This is thousands of people with one of my two brothers. One of my brothers is a missionary, and he was going to be serving on a panel and a breakout session at this conference. And so he was considered one of the speakers, presenters for this very large event. I went along as his guest. And what that meant was not only did I get free free registration, but I also had a badge with a special color that let me get into some exclusive areas, right? So now think about this. If a security guard who was monitoring the speaker's reception uh, was allowing his brother to get into the buffet, hey, 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 that's not right. You're supposed to be impartial, he, that guy's showing partiality. He's, that security guard's letting his brother into the buffet. But if his, if his impartiality was perfect and absolute, he wouldn't let me in either. I wasn't a speaker. I didn't write a book. I don't, I'm not the pastor of some megachurch. If, if he is impartially judging by what I have done, I don't belong there. I am only there on the basis of what someone else has done. And I'm with him that I benefit from. And that, folks, for you, in the gospel, that person is Jesus. What he has done allows me to pass judgment. What he has done allows you, as you hold on to him, as you trust in him, as you put all your eggs in his basket, your, your hope for glory is in him, with him. That's how you are in. That's your hope. As I said in the previous point, if, if according to my works, I have piled up debts before the bill comes due, unless someone else is covering it, I'm in big trouble, right? Jesus covers my debt. Now, for a final shorter point in this sermon, I want to go back to verse 4, and that seems like it hints towards this salvation. So verse 4 uh, once again, or do you presume, you person who is judging, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? This is part four, or excuse me, part three. Um, God's kindness, your repentance, every day that God puts up with your sin gives you time to turn from it. Paul has been talking about the pervasive wickedness of the world. Even the good people won't be able to stand on their record when it comes to the final judgment when we stand before God. Back at verse 18 was when he really started this. Uh, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It condemns both the immoral and the moralist. All condemned, all sinners. And then, it seems like through, through the, the dark, thundering clouds of God's wrath, we get this shaft of light. God's kindness, wrath, 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 kindness. And I will admit, I usually remember this phrase, it's, the, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. I, I usually remember this phrase out of context. I, I, you know, God's kindness. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, uh, God's kindness, that whoever believes in him, that, that's, that's uh, in tandem with, with uh, that faith, in tandem with repentance, uh, will have eternal life. 
I, I hear that phrase, God's kindness leads us to repentance, and I jump to the gospel, but the gospel's not in this paragraph. What, what, what is he talking about? If he hasn't gotten to the gospel yet, what is this talking about, about God's kindness and our repentance? Uh, what does Paul mean by God's kindness if it's not who Jesus is for us? Well, the moralist, the person who judges others and yet sins in the same way, presumes upon the riches of God's kindness, forbearance, and patience. You see those words there, chapter 4? Those three words together are various aspects of one thing, if we can put it that way. God, right now, God is putting up with our sins by not judging us yet. You see, it is an act of God's kindness, forbearance, and patience that he does not strike us down in the moment of our sin. He could. That would be his righteous judgment. He would have every right to do that. It would be justice. The truly guilty get what they deserve for what they have done. Justice. But he doesn't discipline us in the moment. And that's going to be another factor we're going to come back to later. But think about it. He doesn't discipline us in the moment. And just as, or maybe even better, doesn't punish us in the moment. And just as sure as judgment day is coming, that he talks about in verse 5, it's not here yet. Why? I mean, why doesn't he just that? I mean, it seems like there's many people that, that when, when bad things happen in the world, big shootings or tsunamis that wipe out whole villages in Southeast Asia. Like, God, God why, why don't you... Uh, step in. Why don't you just, uh, the tsunami was a bad idea. Let's take the shooter. Um, the, the, why don't, God, why don't you just zap the, the bad guy? You know, when, when, he, when he's go walking into the mall and he cocks, why don't you just, right there? Why not? Or, or maybe, you know, after he fires, okay, now he's guilty, but stop the bullet. You know, why doesn't God do that? And yet the, the real issue is, why doesn't God zap me? in the instant that I've sinned. Why doesn't he do that? After, uh, I'm going to jump to 2 Peter for a moment. You don't need to turn there, but maybe you want to write it down if you want to look at it later. 2 Peter 3, this is the last chapter of 2 Peter, chapter 3, verses 7 to 9. And he had just, Peter had just been talking about uh, the judgment of God that came in the days of Noah. How did the judgment of God fall on the world in the days of Noah? A flood, right? A, a great deluge of water. And then Peter says, But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire. Back then, water. Coming up, fire. Stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Do you you get the difference? Slow is one thing. Patient is a good kind of slow, right? He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. It's the same thing, right? Peter is saying God's patience is for the sake of your repentance. 
It's the same as Paul saying is God's kindness, the riches of his kindness, meaning his, his, how many kindnesses does God show us? How many sins does he overlook? How many times where he, he could have hit the button, bzz, zap, he could have done it, and, but the riches, the, the, the abundance of his kindness to us that he shows us, his kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But so... Here's the tragedy. So many people experience God's kindness, forbearance, and patience, and they go somewhere that it does not lead. It was meant to lead you to repentance. But what, what do we do? You say, cheat on a test. Teacher doesn't notice. You get a better grade. God doesn't zap you. And the fact that he seems to put up with it leads you to cheat again. It was meant to lead you to repentance. And you thought it led you to cheat again. You you lie to your wife about where you spent that money. She's a little suspicious, but she lets it go. And there's no thunder from the sky. And the fact that God seems to put up with it leads you to lie again. His kindness was meant to lead you to repentance. You have to know that the judgment day is coming. You have to know that. When time will be up, when he, when, when he will no longer forbear with you, when, his, when the slowness of his patience, his patience doesn't run out, it just... It's, it's over. The, the opportunity, the time, the, all those opportunities he gave you at some point are going to come to an end. And if he's not carried out your execution today, he just gave you another day to repent. Every day that God puts up with your sin gives you time to turn from it. Now, remember, this is not, this is not the whole gospel. We're, we're not there yet in Paul's explanation. This is a, a key part. So if we just stop with, I need to turn from my sin, that's what repentance is. I need to turn from my sin. I need to renounce it. I need to stop it. I need to say, oh, that's, I don't want to do that anymore. I'm going to go in a different direction. That, that's you just turning over a new leaf. You ha- trying to, to make a fresh start you having uh, New Year's resolutions, that's not the gospel. But repentance is part of it. It's Repentance without Christ is not enough, but it's where you start. That's why John the Baptist's message of repentance was essential but incomplete. We had to have the Savior who would pay for our sins. So turn from your sins, yes, to trust in Christ. He's the answer to the question, if God's judgment is based on my behavior, what hope do I have? Without Christ, no hope. With Christ, well, he's the hope. What hope do I have? Christ. That's my hope. That's my life. I'll close with the words that Renee read to begin our service this morning, and then we'll pray. Titus 3, 3 to 7. He's talking to Christians, to religious people, to people who might have been tempted to moralize. We're not like those Cretans, those people from Crete who are liars and, 
and, and lazy gluttons that Paul talks about in Titus 1. Titus 3, for we ourselves, we Christians, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, not just the kindness to hold back His judgment, but the kindness to send His Savior, but when the goodness and loving kindness of, our, of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, not even, even our good works saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, justified is a judgment word, a justice word, so that we can stand before the judgment justified. As a gift, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's the hope we have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us. I'm sure that many of us here, most, maybe most of us here, have uh, had a time where we would say that we repented, that we, we made that, a decisive turn of faith uh, away from an old life to a new life in Christ, and yet, I know I need to do a daily turning, just like I need to trust you every day. I need to turn from the self-deception that says the real problem is those other people. They're the worst. I'm doing pretty good. God, save us. From that lie that will damn us, we will condemn ourselves. Help us to turn from sin to trust in Jesus decisively and daily so that we can live, yes, in obedience through grace. Do this work in us today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.